Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Rise Up Voices from the Front Lines. And I'm really excited today to be bringing you a happy ending, to be bringing you a story of failing forward and a story of not having to stay where you are and being able to use tools and resources that are available to really create a new life, a new version of oneself, and a new future that is full of potential and possibility. So I would like to bring Travis Lyons to the show. Hi, Travis. Hey, Krista. It's a pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to have you here. And uh, this is your very first podcast. Yeah, yeah. This is my... (sighs) Putting myself out there is quite uncomfortable. Um, So yeah, this is my first time. (laughs) And yet you have one of the most amazing stories of fighting through and not accepting getting back up every time you got kicked down. You have such a perseverance story. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's been a long, long journey and so, in hindsight, yeah, so much resilience. During it, thinking I had a lot of weakness. <laughs> Absolutely understandable. So let's begin, well, let's begin at the obvious place. Since your journey and your challenges began re- really early, let's talk a little bit about your childhood and what shaped your life in those early years. Yeah. And there was there was so much going on. Um, so I guess uh, going back to as a kid, I'm originally from New York, from the Bronx, and I had two polar opposites uh, in terms of my parents. I had my mom who was ruling with the iron fist. Um, she was a, a single mother, and I had my weekend dad, which was I'm the fun guy. Don't be so serious. And <laughs> growing up. You know, it was nice, right? I get the the release with my dad from the strictness of my mom. However, as I hit 10 years old, things started to change a bit. Um, It's interesting even just thinking about, wow, okay, I'm saying my story right now. (laughs) Um, You know, my my dad was, he, he shaped a lot of my beliefs and I didn't learn this till later. But a lot of what from my, I learned about my dad wasn't, about love although that's what i thought it was and it was a lot of just be sexually interested in women because that's sort of what a man is and he wasn't someone i can go to to talk about feelings and and it's just something i sort of understood because he he didn't do it so it's really much just me myself and i and i want daddy's approval so dad says go do this you get that right you do it at a young age right i'm i'm over here doing things at 12 years old, um, really just losing my virginity at that age, going to dad, getting that affirmation. And unfortunately that's where it begins because I'm now distracted and dad sort of co-signing that. Um, now I go through high school and I'm destroying relationship after relationship. And this seems to be a thread that continued on all the way up into my twenties. Um, still not really having anybody to talk to, not having anybody to process, change, 
Um, my mom, me and my mom went back and forth so many times. I'm, I'm Hispanic and being in New York, uh, being the only boy, being the protector, um, watching my mom have to work, go to school, make money. You pull your pants up. You pull your pants up and you do what needs to be done. And being in the Bronx, you can hang out in the streets. That's part of what pulling my pants up was about. Just run away, get out, ignore, act like things aren't a problem. And I suffered in a lot of silence. Spent a lot of teenage years just angry, retaliating, um, getting suspended at school, creating issues, and completely lost. <laughs> Nowhere to go to, no one to talk to, no one to say, hey, look, this is my struggle. Can you give me some advice? And there was also no, I wasn't going to get to that, that idea that there was even anyone out there. It was sort of understood that there's no one that's going to give you you know, any, anything. And it just continued to progress in different ways, right? Hugs, very weird thing. That was like, I mean, even to this day, thinking of like hugging my mom and like, man, I need some practice with that. Um, <laughs> so there was just a lot of a void of emotion, a lot of betrayal. So you struggled with a few different cultural concepts. You had the, the strong masculine figure that is modeling a lack of emotions and a lack of caregiving and that that machismo kind of you know we show our value by how many women we can take and you know another notch on the belt and and there's not that affection and not that relationship development that was not modeled for you yeah and and even with that ironically i tried to be passionate I tried to be romantic. I tried to copy what I got from from movies. And I did, I loved poetry. I had my own private expression. Um, and I tried it. I was vulnerable in relationships. But the thing is, they still didn't work because I had no self-control. Because I had, I had these two beliefs. I really want love and compassion. And I'm getting it from these, these women who are not my family. And this is nice. But ooh, look at that one too. And I'm getting congratulated for looking at that one. So it's like, I, uh, I was really trying because uh, I wanted that. I was so desperate, so starved for it. I just kept destroying it every single time I got a, got a little piece of it. <laughs> Inner conflict. <laughs> Inner conflict. Oh, that dissonance. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, as you progressed and had all these struggles, what, what challenges ultimately ignited a fire in you for change at what points did you just go this is not the life i want for myself oh yeah you know that that happened in my early 20s after my deployment because <laughs> when i look back there were a bunch of glimpses where i feel like i looked out and i had an understanding that there was more there could be more but then that window would close right away and life would go on continue living the way it was and um, in Afghanistan, you have a lot of time to think. Uh, seeing the sky was one of my favorite pastimes at night and, and would just ponder all the things that were going on. And at this time, things are like all those habits I was talking about where relationships and everything, right? They're solidified. I had actually got, got married during that time um, and as 18, get divorced during overseas. My trust for the world is completely destroyed. I'm like, get out of here. It's not going to happen for me. 
get out the military. I'm a raging bowl of testosterone. Um, I just roar at everybody and anything. And after my service, so there were a bunch of other things that happened during, right? I have a purple heart and unfortunately I had lost a friend and uh, losing that friend, I've, I've struggled with survivor's guilt for a long time. So with the relationships being destroyed, my friend having had a family and had a daughter that he never got a chance to meet, I struggled with this idea of the reason that you should have died and not him is because you're the piece of shit. You don't have anything to live for. You destroy everything, all this type of stuff. And he had something, he had someone. And so this played on over and over and over. And I would get these ideas like, oh my God, this can't be it. There's gotta be more, there's gotta be something. No mentors, uh, I was too cool for school. So I would never read a book. Um, my mind was closed and I was still angry. I was angry because I had no no family when I when I came back from deployment. See everyone else happy with their family. Couldn't get things that I that I would have liked, simple stuff from family while I'm overseas. So feeling lonely, constantly lonely, lonely, lonely. Where am I gonna look? <laughs> have no idea. And uh my wife now actually was one of the catalysts that really sparked there's another world out there and that that grew my curiosity so what sparked that change you say because that was a long-winded answer uh, <laughs> that's what we're here for a conversation I, I really can't say it was one thing but it was the it was the compounding of a bunch of little tiny moments that made a deep enough crack to say, can you can you try something now? And it did start with a book. It, it started with the book, Think and Grow Rich. I was so close-minded uh, that I thought the book was about money. And the only time it mentions money is at the very end, so it could tell you that it never mentioned money. And I realized at that moment, if I think I will get rich, not in money, but in, in all forms of wealth, that got me excited enough to go read the next book, which was uh, Outwitting the Devil. Isn't that amazing that even a book can become a mentor? It's mm -hmm. not always a living, breathing person. It can be words of wisdom that came before from, you know, old dead guys. <laughs> the old dead guys still have wisdom to offer us. You're right. And to this day, they're still my mentors. I still have yet to find uh, a role model where I'm like, yeah, that's who I want to be. And that used to beat me up all the time, especially in today's culture. Everyone's like, you know, have a vision, have a role model, all this stuff. It ain't that easy. It, it, I had to fall down so many times and falling down look like this. Read the book, get some knowledge, make a shit ton of mistakes where you lose money, you lose more trust, you hurt the people close to you, and you say, oh my God, but I'm trying. How do I still, how does this keep happening? Well, I haven't made it to the point where growth shows itself. Now, there was a, this, I have a, an aggressive temperament, which I'm super grateful for. That aggressiveness, that let that perseverance. No, I, I knew that there was something on the other side. I didn't. I no longer cared about what it was. It's like I'm gonna go see it. I mean, something so small as a 
my wife now, growing up, we didn't have the dinner table like that. She is a full family. And when I went to that, that full house, I'm a Bronx boy. I go to buildings, not houses. And I'm seeing these people eat. I'm like, oh, my God, this is so weird. I'm so uncomfortable. But this is what a family looks like. I think I want this. <laughs> and it, those types of moments grew into something bigger. But I didn't believe once that I would be able to do it. But I stopped caring about that belief. Just like, whatever, man. I want it. So you put the vision in your head of what you wanted and you took action every day consistently to go in that direction, even if you fell, even if you tripped, even if you hurt yourself. Yeah. And I'll never forget it. I, I, <laughs> I started to go by my first name because I had this vision. My first name's Abraham. And for the most part of my life, I went by Travis. But I said, Travis can't cut it anymore. Travis is Rico Suave. Travis is the too cool for school. Travis isn't going to get me to the next level. But I think, because I didn't use Abraham, because I thought Abraham was a goody two-shoes name. Okay, cool. So let me go into that goody two-shoes. And I that, that was a huge anchor for me, envisioning who Abraham was. How did he talk? Because as a personal trainer, I did that most of my life. All right. How did he talk? How did he walk? How did he present himself? My language changed. My efforts changed. Now, at this point in time, though, I hate the VA. I, I like, and, and I say that because I wasn't getting mental health. I tried within the first six months of going to the Bronx VA. I got spun around, and all I did was bite the resentment. I took it, and I was like, fuck you. I'm never going back. Um, and, I, and I'll circle back to that later on because as I mature and I open up, I do make my way coming back to the VA, but uh, not not really seeking help at all of this. And I forgot my main point from that. <laughs> Let's go backwards just a tiny bit. Yeah. How did you transition from troubled youth and, and teenager to uh, to joining the military? Mm. What was that transition for you? How did that come about? So I love the idea of, of being in the military. And I had two best friends, uh, Troy and Alexis. And in 10th grade, we had said, after graduation, we're going to go. And unfortunately, after we graduated, um, my mom had remarried. And she was very disconnected from the family. And I remember turning 18 uh, and I was looking for work, still no guidance, no one's teaching me how to get a job, nothing. And my mother had let me ask me, she was like, hey, listen, are you going to come back to the house in, in upstate uh, or are you going to stay down in the Bronx? And I said, well, I need to find a job. Well, in two days, I went up and my whole room was packed up and transformed into an office. And I was kicked out. And I wandered the Bronx for a little bit. My friends don't want to join the military. And I started doing construction. I'm like, bro. You're not about to go back on what you wanted, right? You're not. And I was like, I think I'm a little scared. And then my friend Keyshawn comes back from basic training. Last person I would have ever thought would go into the military. And he's telling me all this stuff about basic. I'm like, I'm sold. Let's go. Same day, went right to the, <laughs> went right to the recruiters. I was like, get me in. 
I didn't tell anybody that I that I that I signed up. Two months goes by. I'm waiting past uh, past the ASVAB. I'm doing PT, all this type of stuff. It's December now. Um, I leave on December 30th. It's now Christmas. I go see my grandmother. This woman is your classic Hispanic. I'm not going to cry, nothing like that. I'll smack you up if I see some tears. She cries. Oh, my God, this woman can cry. She starts begging me to tell your mom. Tell your mom you're joining the military. Like, I do. And I go. And I experience a wild, wild amount of emotions in basic training. You're stripped away from everything. You don't have access to being back home. So all those emotions that you think you get away from, yeah, right. They come home. <laughs> they come. And uh, I spent the next four years just riding out the military. And I learned a lot of things the hard way. Got into a lot of debt because I didn't know nothing about money. Um, made some enemies, made some friends. Got married, got divorced. And just trying to figure it out on my own. I hear that story a lot, actually. That that frame. Yeah. <laughs> I went broke, got married, got divorced. <laughs> yeah. Got in, got out. Yeah. Kind of a, a, a normal. I, I think the military takes such young people that that's their transition phase from childhood to adulthood. They're yeah. not making mistakes that other kids don't make. It's yep. just more visible because you have to be so much better. You have to be so ready to take on what you take on. So you don't get to make the mistakes that a 20 year old in the civilian world gets to make. Absolutely. And the military only reinforced my childhood, right? Pull, yeah. And I'm sure you hear this all the time. Yeah. Pull up your pants. Don't cry to me. Right. That's not a man, that type of stuff. And then in the military, here I am, 18, super defensive. Any little thing, any little thing, I'm going to get defensive and I'm going to roar. And I got me into a big, big amount of trouble. But over the year, you do that for four years around a bunch of men. You go spend a year in war territory where you know that just as much as you're out for other people, other people are out for you. That that hypervigilance, that, all that testosterone builds up. I don't want to say there's no coming back because I'm I'm here. I'm the man who I am today, and I would I would definitely say that I came back. But that was a process. I used to think that I was impervious. I used to think ah, basic ain't gonna ain't gonna change me. You would change, you didn't even know it. War changed, you didn't even know it. Yeah. I think there's no coming back without action and effort and commitment and a massive amount of self-awareness that is unfortunately very rare. Yeah. We yeah. have to be able to look at ourselves with honesty and say, this is not what I want. This is not who I want to be. What does the person I want to be do and say? And who is that person? And you created that vision for yourself without even knowing those tools. You created that vision for yourself to take action in the direction you wanted. Yeah. And action was super small, really small. It was like, stop lying so much. Like, okay. Stop lying so much. I'll feel better. Stop cursing so much. Like I, I, I had to approach things that were manageable. 
on my level. Sure, I wanted the, the fatter wallet because somehow there was a hole in mine. I kept losing money just as fast as I got it. But also, like, after I got out of the military, I smoked a, a shit ton of weed. And then I'll, I'll go work for, for a gym. Everybody's smoking weed. So now culturally, I'm in and out of it. I mean, my clients didn't even know what version of me they were going to get. I was just always high. Partially of it was to avoid all different thoughts and feelings. The second part was to be social and also break down this. Because um, like for the first year, two years after the military, and it happened during, people would tell me, oh, you've changed. Your humor's changed. You're not laughing at the things you found funny. Almost as if like I became concrete of some sort. So sure, smoking that, I guess you could say, cracked that concrete and allowed me to be me a bit. But I relied on it too too heavily. At the point for a little while, I did lose sense of myself. So I get think in order, doubling back a little bit, just thinking grow rich was number one on how things really started. Cause it was just the first time I got answers. That's so funny. A lot of people will say that book was their inspiration, but not usually with a story like yours. It's usually the foundation of their entrepreneurship journey, you know? So people kind of put that in the context of that's a finance book. That's a money book. That's a business book, but it is so much more than that. It is, it, it does highlight how important mindset is in this journey of self-discovery and identity. You mentioned the word identity, and I think that's what you were looking for all those years was that knowledge that you can create your own identity and that it's not something that's thrust upon you by others. And you've gone to the place where you're creating more of what you want to be. So let's talk about your healing process and your healing journey, because I get asked questions very frequently about psycho psychedelic therapies and what's my opinion of it. And I have a couple of clients who've experienced it, but I have no personal, uh, I have no personal knowledge of, you know, what that experience is like, but the results seem to be when they work, they seem to be immediate and just, Um, almost unbelievable the power that that can have so talk about what you did and what was your experience like in uh just a little bit of detail about that journey for you absolutely um yeah so i mean i've been working with a therapist for at the from the va since uh let's say like 2019 i believe and after working with her for two years, she had asked me if I would be interested in a study, an MDMA study. And I was like, oh, yeah, tell me a little bit about that. And I just ended the study, and it was mind-blowing. One session, immediately after I told the therapist, I said, if I worked with you for seven more years, I was never going to think my way into these, into these thoughts, into these feelings, into this experience. It, it condensed years of potential therapy into eight hours absolutely crazy um man where do i start there's so much there right there's so much there so you did a high intensity protocol where you did iv therapy correct iv no 
they gave me um so what it was is they they gave me um i believe it was 120 milligrams of pure mdma and the va is working with maps um to do this study and the mm -hmm. setup there's a lot of a lot of setup there it takes at least two months leading up to it but you're in a room you're laying on the bed you have your two therapists on each side they're with you 100 percent of the time and they have music there music is is a very very integral part to this experience and they give you they give you these two and in about 20-ish minutes you know, things start to change you start to realize physically you feel a little different they give you some eye shades and when you put these eye shades on for example at one point in time when this this song had played it was like tribal music beating and like a movie there was the scene i was just watching these like indigenous people walk through the woods and they're walking towards this aztec temple and if you could picture it, right, there's like one guy in front of the other with a, with a stick across and what would naturally be like a sacrifice, a hog or something like that. And as they're walking, as the lens pulls back is me. I'm the sacrifice. And at this point in time, like I understand. I'm sacrificing myself, all the bad parts of myself for the sake of growing out with the old and with the new. So I'm, I'm vibing with this. And as the song continues and the scene plays out, they get up to the top of the of the temple. And last minute, somebody yells out. They're like, no, 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 no. We got the wrong person. We got the wrong person. Stop all of this. And I remember being so confused. And right after that confusion, it's like my brain just forfeited all, all the understanding and the information. And it said, uh, yeah, this is your MO. You're used to sacrificing yourself for everybody, for everything. You throw yourself under the bus for the sake of situations, lack of self-care per se, right? And the song switches. And when the song switches, the next scene comes out and I'm in a hole looking up and I could see the sky, crystal blue, one cloud going by. And this silhouette of a person leans over and puts their hand inside I grab their hand, I pull up, and the moment the sun hits them, I realize it's me pulling myself out of this hole, this support. Once again, my brain provides all the context, all the understanding. Wow. You know, you've been there for yourself your entire life. That you could rely on yourself, that you can support yourself that you can be compassionate, then <laughs> it's crazy that the, the tribal music comes back and everyone's dancing, hundreds of people dancing, rejoicing, like that I became whole. Remember, I took off took off the, um, the iPads that, they, that I had on. I tell the therapist, I like, oh my God, you wouldn't believe what just happened. And I just saw this and I just saw that. I had never felt so loved by myself before. It was so one of the things I learned about the MDMA is that it shuts down the amygdala, the 
part of your brain that's responsible for that shitty self-talk that we tend to have. With that out of the way, you get you get to the root. You just free up. And I remember telling the therapist, it's as if the the like if I had if my veins were wires, electrical wires, the ones that I thought were dead just got completely re-electrified. I feel complete even at this moment. And it was just so beautiful. This experience allows you to, to get the junk out of the way. I realized at this next scene, which was so cool and, and mind-boggling, it's a desert. It's the Afghanistan desert, just as I remembered it. And all of a sudden, I shoot up into the sky. And my, my mind is showing me like a Rolodex, my life of all the times that I've never given up, that I did actually care for myself, not only care for myself, that I've cared for other people despite being treated like shit. This was evidence that, hey, you are a good person. And it was, it's as if it knew, I was like, all right, is this enough? And I'm like, I get it, I get the point, yeah, that ease. You see, I can never look at myself. I can't look at the, I, like I could now, but before that MDMA experience, I couldn't look at the past and look at the past. I had to look and judge, look and judge all the time. So with that judgment out of the way, I was able to look and see like, oh my gosh, look at you. You're not that asshole. And in fact, you've been that way even when you were 10 years old. Because I had a bunch of naysayers, my father's side of the family. They've said some things. I'm, I mean, when I went to join the military, one of them in a group of family, they said, oh, yeah, people who fail at life join the military. I got up. I said, fuck you all. And I stormed out. So I'm over here thinking I'm stupid. I'm uneducated. I'm not going to be able to be somebody. And then, you know, I go and be an infantryman. That's all I'm worth. I'm just a fucking grunt. Well, sure, life changed, but. That MDMA experience showed me that, no, you had it all wrong. It was one big misunderstanding. I love the way you describe, like, all of the dead parts of your nervous system, all the, the pathways that were dead coming back to life, because that's a hugely intuitive way to say the only thing we know about these psychedelic therapies, and there's a couple of them that do it, um, is that the neurological pathways that are not firing are actually able to begin firing again. So it is repairing the damaged parts of your brain, the parts that got shut down by the traumatic experiences that were all the energy was hijacked by that overactive amygdala. The neuroscience behind it is literally what you were saying, is that those, those synapses are rewired. You get that energy back to them and they're, they're firing again the way that they used to probably better than they ever did. And you literally are regenerating nerve functionality in, in the brain, which is a huge big deal. And science doesn't understand why it's doing that or why it's capable of that, but it's literally healing a damaged brain. Yeah. So One of the things really that therapist told me was um, MDMA allows the body to heal 
because the body knows the mind and body knows what it needs to and that when you think about that science you think like yeah that amygdala really does get in the way of healing because we get in our own way we judge ourselves like i said it's so i could never look at the past and not ridicule myself at the same time healing happens when you stop judging that that's it at the end of the day you're not going to heal if you're going to judge because you're judging that's why you can't do those two processes together Absolutely. So tell us about your life now. Tell us about what are you doing? What is what is all the bright stuff on the horizon? And, and what has this opened doors for for you? Yeah, oof, so many, so many doors. Um, hmm. Well, if I may, can I share a couple more experiences from the other two days? Because they'll tie together yes. into that. Of course. So all that happened on day one, plus a couple more stuff. When I went back four weeks later for the second session, the the music had, uh, of course, right, the music really sets the tone. This song had played, and all of a sudden I'm, I'm just floating there on a huge ocean. Now, I had spoken to my therapist about parts of myself that I hate, parts that I've buried, moral injury that I've struggled with, things that I've done in Afghanistan that um, that I've seen that have been the type of person having that conflict. I stuffed that part real deep. So now when this song plays, I'm in the ocean and I decide I'm going to go swim down. I'm going to go get that part of myself. And the song starts really slow and really long. And I'm, I'm swimming down. And I'm like, fuck, this is such a long ass way down. And I get to the bottom and there goes that monster inside of me, that, that monster that I'm like, I can't let you out because you ruined things in my life. And when I, when I made it to the chin and he looked up at me, he was sad. And I remember being so confused, like, why are you sad? You're the worst parts of me. The worst parts of me don't get to be sad. This doesn't make sense. Well, yet again, my brain just gives me the understanding. It's like me shoving 10 books in your in your face all at once and you understand all 10 in an instant. It's like I have all the context. I said, wow. Although you have been down here this whole time, I've been growing as a person. You grow too. All parts of you grow at all times. I've been neglecting that part. And so while I'm there facing him, I realize that that monster, that part of me that, that I called evil and bad saved me as a kid, saved me in Afghanistan, saved me with, the, with all the other men, all the opinions of other people. That, that version that I say, you're an asshole, Travis? No. Yeah. Did my defensiveness get out of control at times? Yes. But if I didn't have that part of me, who knows the type of man I'd be today? I would have succumbed to all those opinions. I would have completely bought into it. But that monster, realizing at that moment, was the biggest strength that I had. But I was emotionally immature. So, of course, that part of me is going to be emotionally immature. It ran rampant. I ran rampant. I'm a lot more mature now. 
But I didn't realize at first was, yeah, I swam down there, but I didn't swim down there alone. That compassionate version of me that I picked up from day one, that that version came down with me. And both of us are looking at this monster and we're saying like, it's time to let you free. Those chains fell off and I remember the swim back up. It was long. It was, oh, here we go again. Am I even going to fucking make it? We get up to the top. The, the giant's mouth just reverberated through my physical body in real life. Like I felt it in my bones. I felt the chills. Just that gasp of air, like freedom, finally. It was crazy. And it was this absolute understanding. Once again, you misunderstood yourself. What you called evil, what you called the monster, the destroyer, protected you. That was part of my resilience, but I didn't see that. It's a really big misunderstanding. I love your descriptions because they are so closely tied in with a lot of the therapies that, that we work with in post-traumatic stress healing processes, the, the internal family systems that that discovering the different protectors that you have inside yourself. And almost always people have some kind of rage beast that scares them. It's a part of themselves that they hate and they, they put it in chains and they try to lock it, stuff it away. But the story is almost always the same. It saved me. It protected me from these things that I was afraid of. What it's trapped at the age in which it was created is the way it's often described is so if you were six when that rage monster was born when it first had to protect you it's still six so what it thinks will protect you is not what your adult mind is looking for mm. for protection so it's just a really great the way you describe that is a really great example of that inner family systems therapeutic process just happening organically without you even knowing what it is or why it's done you just naturally experience that bringing together of your internal parts and, and that desire to be uh, loved and accepted by yourself in all the aspects of your being. Yeah. And that compassion part, you know, you know when you talk about, well, what changed? What's my life like now? I'll go and ask that compassionate part. Hey, compassion, I need your help. I'm going to call you by name. That's That's your name. One of the things that caught me so off guard, which these are the lingering effects of MDMA. After the second session, it's um, it's Memorial Day. They're having a whole veteran ceremony right by my house. I, I, t I tell my wife, yeah, let's go. And we start walking around. They got all these tables set up, different recovery centers. They got acupuncture. They got food, all this type of stuff, right? And they have a whole um, ceremony that's going to happen in a few and I am uncomfortable. I actually wanted to fucking run. I'm skipping all the tables. Very uncomfortable. I'm like, all right, you got to say something. So I got to tell my wife, I say, yeah, hey, hey, babe, I really actually just want to go. just want to go. She's like, oh, are you, are you okay? Is that why you're, we're not stopping at any of the tables? I'm like, yeah. She's like, you want to leave? I was like, I want to, but I, I don't think, no. No, no I want to continue to push through this. So I do. We make it to the other side, and they start the ceremony. Now they have Vietnam vests, they have all these different eras, they're all in their uniforms, you got the vehicles, super cool, love the nostalgia, all that type of stuff. And then they start playing music. 
they start having the detail. And when I, <laughs> as soon as I heard just the, the sound, it brought me right back. I'm over here in Afghanistan. I am, um, <laughs> I'm with all my fellow brothers and we're watching my friend Miller's casket get dragged down through the middle. And I start panicking. I'm like, not now, no, 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 not now. I don't want this to happen right now. I'm, I'm, I'm getting watery, but the music is still going. I'm in it. I'm here. And I'm at my wife. She's looking straight. I'm like, all right, fuck. There's so many people around. Oh, I just want to get out of here. And then I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Compassion. Compassion, are you there? Can you can you help me out? I, I need you right now. Clear as day. Yep, I'm here. Yeah, take a back seat. Let me take it from here. I said, oh, my God. I appreciated that. Tap out. And that compassionate part really started to speak to me. And I learned a shit ton in that moment. Completely reframed this my, the whole survivor's guilt, the whole experience. You are not a piece of shit. It's not a matter of you should have died and he shouldn't have. It's not, no one should have died theoretically. You are both young bucks in this place. And you have been labeling yourself as a worthless asshole, a worthless life. You were just struggling. You were just a struggling young man with no mentors. You lived in the projects at one point, scraping fucking nickels and dimes for ham and cheese because you couldn't eat that night. You were just learning and making mistakes along the way. I said, wow. Because now I'm, I'm, I'm charged. I'm on. Right? Those wires, they're on. I could accept that. My amygdala still isn't back up and running at, at optimal performance so it's i'm not refuting that epiphany so can you let yourself cry right now can you just let it out yeah i'll drop it i just stood there and just cried and i told my wife what happened and after that i went went back to all those tables i avoided i engaged with people made some good connections so that's how compassion continues to reappear in my life. That disassociation in a way, being able to call upon that part of myself, which I know what that compassion is like now, helps me not take things so personal. Helps me see things and understand them. That a monster has matured and that monster helps me be assertive. That monster helps me stop sacrificing myself when I'm in a moment and I'm uncomfortable and I'm like, I don't want to burden this person. Oh, so you're going to sacrifice yourself right now? You want to go into the fire? No, I really don't right now. So the self-talk is really amped up. I talk, I've always talked to myself. Well, we all do, whether we admit it or not. But my, my self-talk has become very conversational. So I stand up for myself. I stand up for my feelings. I stand up for uh what i believe in what i don't believe in more assertive not aggressive if that makes sense so those are two really impactful ways how mdma has changed my life just how i interact with people interact with myself you've learned how to how to use your inner strengths and how to how to put the best parts of you forward in
Oops, you cut out for a second. Can you repeat that? Yeah, we, we lost each other for a second. <laughs> so, so it sounds like you've learned how to use all the different parts of you and the best qualities of them in different circumstances. And you can call upon them and their qualities as, as you need to. And that literally is, that is the, the function and the, and the goal and objective of inner family systems work. So you've created a family, an internal family for yourself mm-hmm. of, of support that is all the different parts of your personality, all your different innate qualities. And like you said, we all talk to ourselves. It's it's just our, our brain. Oh, no. Brains have multiple parts. <laughs> they, mm-hmm. Sometimes the internet is not so great. So <laughs> I love how this parallels, how your experience naturally parallels a course of post-traumatic stress work that someone would, like you said, go go through over the course of like a year or two or three or four or, or more, depending on how uh, available to themselves they are or ready yeah. for change. Absolutely. And I mean, the healing continued and it continues. One of the biggest changes of my life is I just, I started meditating. I started every day. And, and I used to think that meditation was this really big thing. And I've been, I've been a personal trainer. I know all about breathing. I know the importance of it, the value of it. I mean, I'll teach it. Did I comprehend it on a deeper level? Nah. But during that second MDMA session, I just had this epiphany that meditation is prayer connecting to my myself my myself is that higher power every all all the stuff that is in me that i that is beyond my understanding and i thought because i struggled with with god and and connecting and all of that what i realized is that there are people out there who pray breakfast lunch and dinner and in between morning when they wake up and go to bed at night how many times do i check in with myself I'm definitely not checking in with myself breakfast lunch and dinner and in between or in the morning or at night how often am i priming my mind to prepare for the time that i'm awake Mm. so so not consistently so i realized i want to stay connected to the compassion i want to stay connected to the monster i want to stay connected to the sexual part of myself i want to stay connected to the confident the courageous all of that type the child all of it the only way I'm going to do that is actually look at myself. And now I have it. Now, I, now I'm not afraid to have some dialogue with myself. And that's my prayer time. I'm not going to let myself go um, neglected ever again. So what's next for you? Yeah. Ooh. So right now, um, I, I love helping people. I've always have. It's fun. That's how that's how I get my feel goods. Just is a quote that I live by. The biggest sin of the desert is to know where the water is and not tell your neighbor. Well, I know where there's a bunch of water in a bunch of different places. And my goal is to go guide people to where they can of their choice because there's more than one. So I'm, I'm in the process of developing something called heroic care. And it's it's a mindset coaching where I'll be working with vets. We're going to get into the down and gritty of that mindset. 
We're going to talk about goals. We're going to talk about the feelings. We're going to talk about how to tie them together. We're going to talk about intrinsic motivation. Break the veil, right? A lot of things are such, they're just misunderstandings. And just from the process of MDMA, not even not even the drug itself and what it did, I have so much respect for the strategy in which it plays out. You know, I do substance abuse counseling for first responders and veterans, and I enjoy it. But in life, when we talk about mental health, when we talk about outpatient care, inpatient, when we talk about life coaching, there has to be an integrative part, I believe, the follow-up. The follow-up is so important, the accountability. And accountability is trust with somebody. That when I'm going to report to you, can I trust that you'll be there? Can I trust that you'll be there and I'll feel like you care? Can I trust that you'll be there, you'll care, and that you'll actually give me some caring feedback, right? That That is what I got from the integration through MDMA. That I was able, every two days I had to call the therapist. And I was excited, not all the time, but I was excited for it. And there was that expectation. So I, that's what I'm doing right now. I'm working on a life coaching program to help vets with the mindset, with the emotion, build some emotional intelligence, teach them what I learned, and be with them though as they learn it, not just teach it and walk away. Like, can we make a process out of this? Oh, very, very important. So how can people get in touch with you if they want to know more? Absolutely. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, it is Abraham Travis Lyons at LinkedIn. I think that's how it goes. <laughs> um, and also on Instagram. My Instagram name is Silverback Abe with a B. <laughs> Oh no, you froze. That's so funny that princesses are in the background. <laughs> I might have yeah. to edit that. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. <clears throat> Any last words of wisdom for our audience? Mm. Two things. Slow it the fuck down. Slow down. In recon, we had a we had a saying: "Slow is smooth, and smooth is fast." And I lived by it, but I, again, one of those things I didn't understand. Just slow it down and live your life. Don't be in a rush. You'll get there. And the second thing would be, it's okay. Everything is okay. 
It may not feel that way. But when you look at things objectively, you're okay. Those would be my two messages. Thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you, Krista. It was such a pleasure. Thank you, everybody, for being with us today, despite some of our uh, technical difficulties. Uh, I hope that you gained some important understanding and that you enjoyed hearing Travis's story. And if you feel compelled, reach out to him. Um, Thank you so much for supporting this podcast, which is on behalf of Battle to Be, a 501c3 nonprofit that serves those who serve country and community. And if you want to make a donation to keep this podcast going and the important resources that we provide for our community, you can do so at B-A-T-T-L-E, the number 2B-E.org, battle2B.org. Thank you so much and have an amazing evening.